Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day Nina, how are you? Good, thanks Andrew, how are you? We're on a tiny little screen today, aren't we? Yeah. Our IT system <laughs> collapsed, it's terrible. Technical difficulties this morning. <laughs> well look, we've got some interesting things on today, but one of the things that both you and I have noticed is that there has been a new set of um, people coming out talking about quiet quitting. Yeah, five Pre- months after the fact that everyone else was talking about them. <laughs> yeah, pretending that quiet quitting and people who are just lazy rather than people who post-COVID realised that their life was a much fuller life. Yeah. And funnily enough, without even looking at the evidence that shows that Australian workers are, are very productive and incredibly productive in this current period, so there is actually no evidence of the pejorative quiet quitters, lazy people, and they're now they're suggesting there's going to be quiet firing because these lazy people are going to be sacked. Can I just say the evidence is really clear at the moment. Australian workers are working really hard. They're working flexibly. They've actually engaged in this new way of working, and it's an incredibly positive thing. So for those people who wish to create headlines for themselves, I wish they'd go away. I think it's also just an excuse that they're trying to justify their behaviour, whereas in the industries where this is coming about, it's industries where they're forcing employees to work excessive hours, take on many different responsibilities, haven't looked at their work design ever. No. And employees saying, look, this is beyond my scope. This, this, could, this, be the law, this could be the law industry. <laughs> oh, it definitely is. Psychological hazards and everything, and instead of dealing with it like they're obliged to, they're just going to fire them. That's right. They're going to create a name which burdens these people with being lazy because actually they don't want to travel two hours to get to work. They want to travel an hour to get to work, so they want to come in at 9.30, not 8.30. Anyway, look, I just thought I'd raise it because it's another lot of crap that is out there in the community around the way people work and behave. I think for Nina and I, our observations are and through our clients is the world is actually fitting into a decent pace, different pace, but yeah. decent pace. And But for the shortages of labour, things are going pretty well. So <laughs> that's just an aside. Let's jump into the case. We're doing a lot of safety cases today. So Nina, maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about Guilfoyle because it's an interesting decision that's been made. Yeah, it's a really sad decision too. So this one involved a company that provided tours for foreign students visiting Australia. And during a Fraser Island tour, two Japanese students drowned. And it was a clear breach of primary duties and reckless endangerment. They didn't have any risk assessments done for the activities. The consent forms didn't even refer to swimming, didn't check swimming ability. Staff weren't trained in how to handle kids swimming. So complete absence of any systems and processes. Yeah, what was odd about this case is for reasons which we'll never understand, Queensland WorkSafe ran it in the Magistrates Court, which has a maximum fine level of about three to 400000 I can't remember what it is. So the fine of 250000 was a very, very substantial fine. Yeah. Because had it been run at a district court or a Supreme Court level, that fine probably would have been close to $1.5 million. Yeah. But it was just because of the limited jurisdiction. So when you see the fine, don't misunderstand. It was around about two-thirds of the maximum fine that could be given in the Magistrates Division. And what was unique is that the prosecution only pushed for 150 to 180. It is extremely rare for the court to say, no, we're going to go above that because it's just just how yeah. serious and it was. It's also worth noting that in court, what you do is you're obliged to provide comparable cases, but you're not allowed to advocate for the fine level, okay? That's, that's actually unlawful behaviour by any prosecutor or defence counsel. And you need to know that if you ever get prosecuted, that we actually can't do that. All we can do is put comparable cases. But, yeah, really interesting case, tragic, awful case, and just shows how simply 
something could have been done to protect these two kids. Yeah. And it's just built on systems and competency, really, isn't it? Yeah, and just a reminder that the courts aren't shying away from increasing their fines. We've been saying this for the last couple of Friday workplace briefings, but this is the proof. It's just getting higher and higher. Yeah, can I just say, again, if this was in, in a county court in Victoria, fine, oh. would, fine would have been $1.2 to $1.5 yeah. million, dollars, without a doubt. All right, let's go on to Campbell and All-Star Asbestos. Again, another interesting safety case, this time in South Australia. Yeah, so this involved a long-standing employee who was removing asbestos sheets off a veranda for a house. And as he was resting on one of the boards, the timber shaft just collapsed underneath and he fell two metres onto a concrete slab. But weirdly enough in this case, the director actually knew about the risk and she had been concerned about the risk that the timber rafts could shatter. So she had gone around and put in controls, various things to support the fascia beam. But at the court, the experts found that although there were controls, they only marginally improved anything because they only supported two very discrete parts of the beam. So nothing really turned on it. And then she also had in all her policies, make sure that you use a harness when you're doing a high-risk work, but no one was ever provided to him. So they were aware of the risks. She did the bare minimum controls and thought, that's it. It's hit with a 500K fine, which was only reduced because of early plea and because they had no money to 150000 yeah. but clear case of reckless endangerment. Yeah, and can I just say once again, if you look in Victoria and New South Wales for a case like that, fines would be massive. Yeah. And the failure to provide safety harnesses given fall from heights is probably the second most commonly prosecuted matter. It's seen as a real issue here and it's seen as a real issue in New South Wales and Queensland, I might say. So, again, I would have thought the fine would have been a lot higher, but it shows you the state of knowledge of an officer, particularly in a smaller organisation because of this. And larger ones, yeah. And it means that you have to actually ensure that the control you're implementing reflects the risk. It's not enough to just think that, you know, you've done a little bit, that's enough. It's, yeah. That's just so frustrating. Well, look, on a lighter note, <laughs> let's let's move over to the, the, cha- the changes in the, the professional award. I think for Nina and I, we're constantly trying to work out who actually falls within and outside of the professionals award, so it's IT people's accountants, all those sort of people. Scientists. Who's in who's actually in and out? And there's been so many cases run on it, trying to determine who is in and out. So the major amendment that's coming through with the professionals award is really to identify the category of people who are actually in. Yeah. Which I think is a great start. But yeah. what it does do is it reaches somewhat further than what we thought are the people who are going to be in. So So it doesn't include managers, but definitely most people in engineering, ICT and scientific fields. Yeah. And the other thing it does, which is really quite clever, is it recognises that people are paid significantly more than the award in these areas and therefore if you're paid over 125%, or 150%, depending on whether it's public holidays or whether it's just weekend work, that that's okay. But if you're paid less than that, then you have to pay overtime. Yeah, so the Fair Commission is planning to implement changes to the award where any employee who is covered on the award and is not paid at least 25% above the minimum wages will get additional penalties for unsocial hours, so working before 6am or after 10pm, and uh, 125% penalty for working Sundays and public holidays. So it's really going to affect particularly startups in this area where money is kind of tight given you're investing in other things. If that's the case, you need to ensure that your employees are at least receiving more than that 25% or you need to keep a record of those hours. You do. And so the answer is 
before you're employed, do the modelling. Are mm. they going to work on a Saturday Republic holiday? Yes, 150%. Are they going to work the unsocial hours? Yep. Okay, 25%. But keep modelling it because if you don't model it, you're going to fall foul of it. And as, as I say, in our startup scale-up business, it's a constant problem. But for all organisations, as wages haven't caught up with inflation and wages are actually flattening out a bit, what we're starting to see is that that difference between award payment, uh, award entitlement and actual wage is reducing. Yep. So we're starting to see an erosion of the over-award part of it. So it's quite possible you're not at the 25% over. Go back and check. Yeah, and keep auditing year on year because it changes as well. Zombie agreements. I want to do the, <laughs> I want to do the walk. <laughs> zombie, zombie enterprise agreements for industrial instruments are those that were created under transitional provisions that they've been kept and employees continue to use them. Employees haven't been paying correctly in relation to the national employment standards that are better than the zombie agreements. And so there is this thing of striking out the zombie agreements, which is coming up. So an agreement that's been there for 10 or 15 years still uses the underlying entitlements for the probably being not used lawfully. That's not the major issue. The reason for getting rid of them is that risk that exists with it. There's now legislation that you must execute the zombie agreements. They're actually online. They tell you. Yeah, there's a list online on the Fair Work Commission website. So please check because we've had a few inquiries where people weren't aware they were covered under zombie agreements. And if you are covered, there are obligations on you before the 6th of June to notify your employees that they are covered and that it's going to terminate. Yeah, and then it's just a notification process. Yep. So it's uncomplicated. You don't have to make any applications. No, yeah. Just notification. So find out if you've got a zombie agreement. Notify before 6 June, go through the consultation process that's required yep. after, it's really simple, and then they're gone. Then you fall back onto awards. Mm-hmm. So that's what I want you to understand. Then you fall back onto awards. So yeah, that it doesn't, it's not, you're just free. That's right, <laughs> yes, it's not just minimum term. Okay, well, let's just move on to our major topic. Yeah. And perhaps for Nina and I, this is a topic which drives us crazy because there are a lot of people out there, both in the legal and consulting world, they keep talking about the capacity to carve out liability to contractors. So they say, look, Nina, your dad runs a warehousing business. Why don't you hand over the warehousing responsibilities to a contractor? Yeah, and so that they can wipe their hands on it. Wipe their hands of safety liability. It's probably going to be cheaper. But out of here. Now, can I just say to you, there's a couple of things that aren't true about that. One is it doesn't change your safety liability, and we'll talk about that directly. Secondly, when you actually do a cost analysis around contracting, it's really as good as you think. What you're yeah. really looking for is expertise when you're using contracting yeah. or short-term fluctuating engagement where you have rise and flows in business. So you're not really using it to save money and you're definitely not using it to prevent safety liability. So what is the liability of an employer? You hear me say it every week and you hear Nina say it every week. It has two elements. One is a standard of care and one is a duty of care. The standard of care is to do everything that is reasonably practical. This is a non-delegable standard and duty of care. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you write in the contract. Yeah, you need to identify every hazard that is on site. A hazard is something that's known in the industry or the community. You have to identify the risk based on frequency and consequence. Based on that level of risk, you have to take a control from the hierarchy of control that's suitable and you must identify and allocate resources in the organisation to make sure that control has integrity to meet the duty, which is to provide a safe workplace, to provide proper induction training, to provide appropriate supervision, to provide supervision, to provide monitoring, design, construction, commissioning. They're all the duties, okay? None of that can be contracted out of, okay? Just to be really clear. But if I am in a position where I have evidence which is reliable and continuous, in other words, ambulatory evidence, that the contractor I'm using is doing everything that is reasonably practical 
to meet the duties that are relevant to the nature of the work they're undertaking, yeah. then I can do what is called carve-out. I can say, well, they are responsible. But there is a continuing monitoring obligation and there is That's an evidential yeah, yeah. yeah, there is this evidential part which says, well, what is the evidence that I have that they are, are able to identify hazards? And can I just say this is more complex because it's not just my hazards now. It's their hazards. It's their hazards as well. So if you thought this was simple, it's actually hard. It's twice the amount of work. And you need actual evidence, not just them saying, yeah, we've got everything in control, which is, I think, the most common thing. They say, look, do you have all your systems? Yep, don't worry, we've got systems. We've done this heaps of times before. Cool, we trust you, that's it. That's not evidence. No. So, you know, when you look at what a system is and we talk about our six elements of a system, so you've got the plan, they come and present you with a plan. They give you you their swims, they give you their consultants' documents who created all this for you, and you look at it and the first thing you go is, these are generic yeah. They don't relate to my site. That's weird. Okay, bit of a problem. Boom. Yep. No one's accountable for anything. Okay, real problem. So then I go down and I go, so what are the processes? So I look underneath and I find they're all template-based documents held on an iPad. Yeah, um, haven't put in controls that are on the site. None of those. Yeah. So you go, hmm, now I'm in real problems. Then I look at the training and induction and I, they use subcontractors. And I have no method of testing whether the subcontractors for the contractor are competent, capable, safe. No evidence at all. So at this stage, I know I've breached the first three elements of a safety system, which means my officers are off to jail. But then I go to the next part, which says, so as far as my obligations of supervision of the site go, fourth element, supervision, am I satisfied they have a plan that fits the site and the people who are coming on the site and the process? No. Am I satisfied there is process that relates to the nature of the hazards and risks? No, I'm not. I have no evidence of competency-based training. Number four is gone. So when you have a contract, you come to four and five, which is what is your monitoring process that tells you the system is working and how does that report it to you so that you're not involved in the day-to-day management of people because that bypasses and penetrates yeah, the contractor model and, and yeah. creates liability. But equally, I've got to be satisfied that the system that is living in an evidence-based way is meeting hazards and risks and they are instituting controls and that there is a, a lever in it which when I'm satisfied they're not, I can stop and go, yeah. show me how you're going to fix this. Not I go and fix it, but show me how I'm going to fix it. And when you'll fix it. Now, can I just, none of this is new, okay? There has been a thousand judges who've said this and yet there is still this absolute nonsense that if I hire a contractor, I contract out safety. It is a lie. And the safety legislation goes further and says that each person has its own liability. It's not a zero-sum game. So each person can be held liable to the highest amount for whatever role they're in, whether they're a host, whether they're the contractor. So you see the whole structure of the Act says it's your site, it's your people, it's your job, you're responsible. You can get somebody else in, but you'll be satisfied. They're managing your risk and they're managing their risk and that there is a documented systematic process that evidences that to you on a day-to-day basis, not once a month, day-to-day basis. There's this yeah. level of comfort. If you don't do that, you don't carve out liability. Yeah, and all these obligations still apply even if you are using those highly specialist contractors. So there is those cases that we've talked to you about before where if you have a specialist contractor you can rely that they have that specialist knowledge. But doesn't mean you don't do anything. You still have to do all those steps that Andrew outlined, check that they have systems in place, still monitor and make sure that they've got evidence that they're complying for anything that is reasonably obvious. Yeah, and can I just say to you, and, you know, we gave some cases late last year where a host was liable in respect of risks that are known generally which are not related to the specific skill which when they looked at the swims that were there weren't addressed and they ought to have just gone, 
well, these are the very risks we deal with every day. Yeah, like so, obvious known risks. Yeah, so you can't actually turn a blind eye. So there's this temptation, again, for going for experts and specialists. Common in roofing would be the most most common. We get somebody to come in and repair roof. Mm-hmm. What's the most the greatest risk? Well, falling from heights. What are the things that happen? Falling over the edge, falling through the roof. Yeah. So if you look at that, it doesn't matter how specialist the person is, unless you are satisfied that those two risks are being managed. You don't get to the next stage. You are just liable. So we're going to see more prosecutions on this. Last year after COVID, we saw a real ramp up in the prosecutions towards contractor liability for principals. It is a focus of all regulators, quite rightly a focus of all regulators, because as environment becomes more casualizer and contract driven, the regulators are properly concerned that actually people's safety is being put at peril as a result of that. And so their focus is on this contractor management piece that we're talking about. And for Nina and I, that means if you're going to do it, you need a contractor management process. Yeah. It goes from procurement. How do we procure? What is the evidence base of competency that I have? What are the systems? So right from the pretender stage, right through to -to day-to-day execution, what do we do at meetings? So when we have our site meetings with contractor, what are the agendas? Each part of this is built around a safety model of showing the contractor is doing everything reasonably practical to perform the duties that are relevant for the work that's being undertaken. Yeah, and I think for that step, a common issue that we have seen with a lot of businesses is the person that they have on site isn't competent in order to monitor risk, and that is a key area of risk for you if the person that you have doing the meetings with the contractor who's supervising has no idea about safety isn't able to point things out or isn't trained in how to do with it how what powers they have to stop the work that's automatically a risk and is going to just yeah and look we see it all the time and i guess the other part behind that is please don't listen to the crazy voice that says that high-level risk over there is not our problem. Don't get involved or you create liability. Because what I can say to you, if I see a traffic management issue, a forklift being driven dangerously, and I am the host, not the not the contractor, but I fail to do anything about it, well, I've just observed a hazard that has an incredibly high level of risk and being I've done nothing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm already up to reckless endangerment. So the answer is how do I stop it? Well, you can work out how to stop it. One is to say to the person, turn that off. Next, go to their supervisor. I want the traffic management to stop for the moment while we have this discussion. I need you to bring me back the systems. I want you to tell me how this has occurred. I want you to undertake an investigation and satisfy me this is not going to happen again. You're not actually doing anything. Yeah, that's that's the key difference. You're creating an obligation on them to show how their systems are going to fix it, but always stop dangerous behaviour. Because you can imagine what a court is going to say. Courts are essentially moral beings despite what everyone says. Courts are going to look at you and say, so you saw this, Mr Douglas? Yes. And you did nothing about it. Do you know what I mean? It's just crazy. Because it was callous, it was indifferent about someone's life. And remember, what courts deal with in safety is the preservation and protection of people's life and welfare. So when they see you for some contractual reason not taking a stance, they're contemptuous of it. Yeah. So remember, the obligation is not for you to fix it, but to make sure you are taking steps for the contractor to fix it. As long as you do that, then you'll be fine. Okay, let's go on to our problem, which tests this. <laughs> Shorter problem today, you notice. Know, 
it still seemed pretty long. <laughs> Big Cut Chips, TCC, had a food processing plant in Scoresby. The production line included a mechanical stacker that was loaded out into an elevated area where TCC's trucks could reverse in, lift the back door of the truck, and the forklift could load the pallets of product into the truck. Moira was the daughter of the owner and in truth ran the business. She realised that with an increase in sales, they needed to outsource the packaging, loading, and logistics. Otherwise, they would need to invest significantly in new capital and Worse still, they would not have the capital utilisation in respect of trucks to get a buyback. She spoke to her OHS consultant, Travis, and he said it was a good idea, but he warned you must not direct or supervise their work or you'll end up liable under safety law. The work was let to Terry's Transport Solutions, TTS. A dog. <laughs> TCC ran a tender process that included the production of evidence that the tender had a safety system. TTS delivered up their template system developed by its consultant. It dealt with all major hazards but was not based on a risk assessment of the actual work TTS was going to take over. TTS was a medium-sized business. It had a safety manager but not one at the TCC site. On the first day of operation with TTS, Moira's operations manager, Tom, saw some very obvious traffic management problems and became concerned by the lack of any supervision. He rang Moira and a meeting was arranged with TTS's boss, Terry, Moira, TCC safety manager, Travis and Tom. Prior to the meeting, Travis warned Moira and Tom to not direct them but just raise the safety concerns. In the meeting, Terry said he was very angry his supervisor let him down and it wouldn't happen again. He probably barked at the pain. Indeed, no. It's more of a growl. <laughs> Tom asked for TTS's risk assessment of their site, but Travis said, we don't need it. That is Terry's problem. Terry explained they use their system and don't rely upon a risk assessment undertaken at the site. The following day, Gabby, a forklift driver for TTS, failed to drop the tines after loading a pallet on racking, entangled the tines in the racking and pulled the racking down along with 12 pallets, crushing a TTS employee. Gabby did not have a forklift licence and had not undertaken any formal training in forklift use. Questions? As many. WorkSafe attended the site and issued a Section 100 or Section 171 in WA. Notice to TCC for all documents surrounding the tendering of work to TTS, subsequent minutes of safety-based meetings and all relevant emails and communications about any safety-related incident. So the Section 100 is OHS Victoria, the 171 is WHS throughout the rest of Australia, okay? Uh, okay. okay, so can WorkSafe seek such documents and once they are received from it, would it expose TCC and officers or employees of TCC to prosecution? <laughs> so the answer is yes, they can. Yeah, and I don't even think they need the documents to reveal that. And I guess this is my problem with documents is you've got to remember that your policies and procedures create what is reasonably practical. So if you have a set of policies and procedures that say you're going to do something and you don't do it, you're liable. Yeah. In this case, you're going to get a whole lot of policies, procedures and plans which show that the hazards were never addressed. So you, the regulator will put those down next to the site and go, so Top Cut Chips accepted someone who came in who did no risk assessment of the site and therefore did no controls around the risk that existed. Libel. Yeah. The officer who was responsible for the tendering process was involved in that procurement process and knew at the time they were doing it that those hazards and risks were not addressed. Liability. Tick. Yeah. Didn't where, check where, that they wherever they are, you know, 144 in Victoria has a knowledge, okay? I think that's the next question. <laughs> yeah, you know, Section 27 WHS, due diligence, know what the hazards are, know the business. So you can see Moira is in a lot of strife at this stage. So next question, was Travis' advice correct for the contract management? No. Absolutely no. But can I just say 
I stole that from some advice that safety manager once gave on the site. Seriously? No, no, it's really common that people say, look, whatever you do, don't get involved, don't supervise, you're there monitoring, don't get involved. If you do, you you pierce this separation that exists. That's a shit. Yeah. The answer is we've told you what it is. You've got to have a system. You've got to be satisfied there's a system. You've got to have a monitoring method within the system and you must be vigilant and it's a daily process it's not a once a month process you need evidence every day coming through or in a process coming through which suggests that your contract is doing everything that's reasonably practical then you can resist a prosecution from WorkSafe. yeah okay and the sad thing is following this advice travis is not going to be found liable it's just going to be the company no no travis travis gets off scot-free three could top cut chips and more be liable under primary duties and due diligence section 21 144 respectively i've given you the double yeah. hs so the answer is yes. Yeah, you spoke about that before. Well, this, just to understand for those who've got offices in Victoria, because it's different, it's an objective test under Section 27 WHS. So do they have a knowledge of the business and the risks? Have they allocated resources to deal with the risks that exist? Have they had up-to-date knowledge of the law? So objective test, don't need to know about the actual issue. But in Victoria, it's three elements. So you've got to know, first of all, the risk exists. Moira did know. Yeah. And if she didn't, that's her own fault. Did she have a capacity to influence and decision Yes, yes she definitely. did. Was the problem attributable to her or other person? No, it's attributable to her. So she's right up there for the Section 144 yeah. liability. It would be easy. And her standard of care under 144 is reasonable care. So she's got to show that a competent person in her role should have picked those issues up and acted upon it. That's a lay down in Yeah. Okay, let's go to question four. You can go for this one. Reckless endangerment. Yeah, so TCC and Moira were aware of the risks and they were indifferent to it. So it's reckless yeah, endangerment. Yeah, so question four is... Could they be guilty of reckless endangerment? Let's go back to what reckless endangerment. The they first, the first test is, is there a risk of serious injury or death? Yes. Yes. Okay. Aware of that risk. And they were indifferent to it. Were they indifferent to it, which means careless, okay? In other words, yes, they've got someone in, they were chatting to them, they raised the issue about a lack of safety. So they've done something. That's not enough, though. But it's not enough it's because not enough. what you've got to show is indifference means that you're not actually addressing the core issue at stake yeah. and you're not stopping it to occur and you don't care about it. You just let it go. And like we said, even if you implemented some controls, if they're not sufficiently addressing the risk, it still means you are indifferent to it. So just simply saying, oh, you know, I'm a bit concerned about this, but then just leaving it, Moira clearly has not done enough. No. So, look, I think certainly in the eastern seaboard states, Moira is at a fairly high level of risk of being prosecuted. There's absolutely no doubt at all that TCC would be prosecuted because the process is one under Section 143 of the Act. There's what's called the attribution clause. So when a person fails in an organisation, creating a breach, the organisation is liable. So there's a number of failures in the organisation, not just Moira's probably, but whatever it is, Top Cut Chips is definitely liable. And Moira is a person who had the influence and control, so I think she's definitely she's definitely in a bit of strife. And can I say the penalties for, for this, it was a first offence in Victoria in county court. You're looking at four to $500,000 an absolute minimum. If there was death, you could be looking at over a million dollars. So worth us going down this path, isn't it? Because you can see straight away, would the contractor be liable? Absolutely. Yeah. Would Terry be liable? Absolutely. Poor dog. <laughs> Poor dog. And they'd be more liable because some of their actions, Terry said, I'm angry at my supervisor. Yeah. But he didn't have anyone with safety competency on the site. Yeah. Nor did he address the nature of the risk that arose. So he's completely indifferent to it. Yeah. And he runs the risk of industrial manslaughter more so than Moira and the yeah. organisation do. 
So that's question five, isn't it, industrial manslaughter? So let yeah. me go through the elements again. Mm-hmm. You've got death that's occurred. Let's just say there was a death, okay? Yeah. You've got serious risk of injury or death as yes. part of the causative chain, yes. You've got a breach of duty, so that's a breach of a common duty, 21, yep. 25, so risk of duty to breach somebody else, yes, you yes. do. Then you have such a wanting of the standard of care, which is a reasonableness test. Yeah, reasonable departure from yeah. the standard. Yeah. yeah, so this isn't a test of reasonable practicability. This is a much easier threshold in some ways. So what it says is, in relation particularly to Moira, given the knowledge that she had, given the risk that Tom had brought to her attention, given the failure of Tom to address it correctly, given all that information, was her doing nothing more such a significant departure from her stand of care of exercising reasonable care to prevent the breach of duty that it gives rise to industrial medicine? My gut feeling is no. I just yeah, don't. I don't think it quite meets it, no. which is so weird because it's more significant offence to reckless endangerment and she's got clearly... She's sunk with reckless endangerment. Yeah, so I, I think if what she said is Terry said, look, I need, I'll need to actually change the contract to increase the cost of supervision, and she said, no, it's your your job, just fix it, then I think we're moving towards industrial manslaughter. Does that make sense? Yeah. We need a more deliberate act because it's so wanting, the, t- the testing, so wanting standing yeah. care. What industrial manslaughter looks for is particular acts more than omissions, which flagrantly breach duties. That's what they're yeah. looking for. Like if they had come back and said, we can fix it, but it's going to cost this much, and she said, no, nah, it's too expensive, I don't want to do it, that would be. Yeah, that's a good example. So there you go, go guys. That's it. That's the 30 minutes. We're wrapped. We're done. <laughs> Thanks, Nana. Thank you, Andrew. Stay Give us a thumbs, thumbs up. up. Thanks for watching. Cheers. Bye-bye.